Hi, this is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. June's almost here. How about that? Yeah. So we have uh, Memorial Day weekend coming up. Okay, remember there's a difference. It's not Veterans Day. It's not Thank You for Your Service Day. So here's the quiz. So what is Memorial Day, boys and girls? Answer. We honor those who gave their lives for our country. And most importantly, we honor their families. So it's a little bit of a warning. If you know somebody who's a Gold Star family... Uh, Give some thought to doing something special for them. To let them know that you don't forget. Because that's a shitty weekend. Right? It's a shitty weekend. Right? Memorial Day furniture sales going on. Memorial Day car sales going on. All kinds of Memorial Day shit going on. And not too many people really giving it a whole lot of thought. Right, as witnessed by Happy Memorial Day. Awesome, thank you, appreciate it. Uh, not to get all soured up here. Uh, at the start of uh, at the start of the week, but just kind of a warning order to everybody. Um, yeah, not a small deal. And then we're to June and summer. That's right. Uh, my youngest daughter graduates from high school, so that's exciting. And, uh, and then I'll head back in June. I'll head up to Montana a couple times and, uh, and then out to Hawaii again. So, uh, June going to be, going to be interesting. Tomorrow's supposed to go down to 
Camp Pendleton and spend a day doing post-traumatic winning stuff with the midshipmen, midshipmen from uh, University of Arizona's NROTC program. So I'm excited about that. And uh, do my seminar tonight. So, yeah, McNamara, all over the globe. But uh, give some thought to uh, to Memorial Day. And, again, it's not thank you for your service day, although, it, you know, thank you for the people that, for their services is, is, is awesome. As somebody who gets thanked by people, I mean, it, it always feels good. But just remember that, that that weekend is devoted to something very specific. And that specific event is making sure families that have uh, that continue to pay the price because they don't have somebody sitting at their, their dinner table. Uh, they don't have somebody around for the holidays. They won't go on a picnic or to the lake with that person. Uh, make sure that those families know that you give a shit. Okay. Make sure that those families know that you give a shit. Now, interesting stuff in the news, and then I'll tell you. I'll tell you what my plan is for this week. Um, it's been in my head for a while, but um, in the news is uh, a report that several, and they did not name the exact number, researchers at the Wuhan Institute for Virology were admitted in November of 2019 to a Wuhan hospital reporting flu-like symptoms. Now, it's interesting to read the different analysis of that, okay? And so the different analysis of that says this. The probability that multiple people at that lab contract influenza or flu-like symptoms or influenza uh, symptoms simultaneously is relatively remote. And so it's kind of an interesting story that you'll see in whatever news outlet you use, if you if you peruse it a little bit. Um, and so it's uh, under the guise of the Iraqis taught me there are no co- coincidences. Yeah. <clears throat> that if it happened, uh, it happened because they wanted it to happen. Or that they screwed it up and it happened. And then the Chinese, because they are the Chinese, uh, certainly didn't want to tell the truth about it. And so they didn't. So they didn't take the appropriate measures. And um, the world has paid an incredible price for it. So um, it'll be interesting to see the World Health Organization who seemingly danced to China's tune uh, throughout all of this, who President Trump uh, took to task on many occasions. We'll see what they do. 
we'll see if they put any oomph into their investigation because more and more uh, nations are saying, hey, we want an answer to this. But when you do that, right, you risk the wrath of the Chinese. So that is in the news. The other story that, uh, frankly, is unbelievable uh, is a story that happened over the weekend. And um, it's a Ryanair jet, okay? And um, what happened is... Members of Belarus's secret service were on board one of its airplanes when the plane was forced by a Belarus jet to divert to the country's capital of Minsk on Sunday, calling the incident a case of state-sponsored hijacking and further raising global aviation industry alarm over the rerouting. Belarusian President Alexander Lyshenko scrambled the fighter, which forced the Ryanair commercial aircraft to land as it was passing through Belarus airspace. Authorities there then arrested a prominent journalist and opposition activist before allowing the plane to continue on its journey. The incident has sparked the international, international outcry and raised questions over the legality of the plane's grounding and the ramifications for the airline industry. What do you mean? Raise questions over the legality? <laughs> like, what are you, stupid? <laughs> you can't do that. You can't send jet fighters up, right, in a rules-based order. You can't send just jet fighters up in international air aviation lanes to force a plane out of the sky so that you can grab somebody so you can what? Kill them? So you can put him in prison? I mean, it's just, it's astounding, this. And so uh, that's a huge, that is a huge story. An act of international air piracy sponsored by a state. So the question is, right? The question is, what happens? What does the free world do when this kind of stuff happens? So, uh, so again, I, I, to me, it's not a small story. It's a huge story. What do the free nations of, uh, of Europe do? What, are the, what does the United States do? And to me, I mean, they should do something very, very drastic that, ha- that, that lands with a thud in this case. Will they do it? I don't know. Angela Merkel? Not so tough with Vlad Putin, you know? Not so tough with Vlad Putin. But, I mean, again, two pretty interesting stories. That one is stunning, honestly. I, I, I don't know that in my life uh, I've ever seen that. So, uh, interesting little story. Now, What I want to do this week is I, I want to play some shows that I did um, about discipline. Because as I watch these hearings 
and I read investigations, I can tell you what I believe. I believe the American military, to include the Marine Corps, is less disciplined. And when you see incidents that happen, be they ship collisions, be they deaths in training, what you tend to see is not, you know, is not what uh, F-18 man, Rudy, calls the Swiss cheese model. All these crazy exceptions lining up, that's not what you're seeing anymore in this. What you're seeing is people that don't read, what you see is people that don't read orders, people that don't follow SOPs. Why? Because you're not a professional, because you're too lazy, because you're too enlightened. So we have this body of wisdom because we do, we've been doing this shit forever, right? So we have this body of wisdom. They're called orders, okay? They're called SOPs. That is what the people that have gone before you have done. That is what they've written down, right? So you have a piece in all of this, your job. And so anyway, so I did a series of interviews with some pretty significant people in the Marine Corps. And I want to play those for you. And I want to do that because I, I, I want to I want to submit that as a counterbalance to the testimony I saw from the, the assistant commandant of the Marine Corps and General Olson. When you're undisciplined, when you don't follow your own rules, so you can start with, with, with a track battalion, that gives, in this case of the 15th Mew, that offers up terrible equipment. Well, somebody's supposed to supervise that. There's professional maintenance people in the Marine Corps that should have looked at that and should have had a meeting with somebody and said, hey, this turd ain't going to flush. And um, that doesn't happen. So what is that? That's a, a culture that doesn't, you know, that we need to change in terms of saying, no, it's people that don't do their jobs, right? Fire them. Stop being a warm safe where everybody's got to feel good, a warm place where everybody has to feel good. Enforce the standards. Tell people, do your job. Read the orders. Follow the SOPs. And think about this. Never had an incident like that in the history of Muse and the Marine Corps. And 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 the muscle that, according to General Olson, that you know maybe our amphibious muscles have have, have atrophied because of twenty years of going to the desert. Well, we haven't gone to the desert in any numbers since about what two thousand twelve. Yeah. So I'm not a big fan of that response. Let me tell you what muscle is atrophied though throughout the DoD, and that is the discipline muscle. That is the discipline muscle. So I, I'm going to play um, a series of interviews. Today's is an interview I did with General Paul Van Riper, and it's a it's it's an awesome awesome interview. Um, and uh, he's an interesting guy, but he's he's one of the smartest guys I've ever met. But he's also about discipline. So there's two there's two elements to being operationally right outstanding. Right? There's two elements to operational excellence. One is hard training. Two, right, the enable of hard training is safe training. You can't train hard if you don't train safe because you don't kill people in training. And what does that take? That takes professionals that understand discipline. And then it takes discipline units to go execute that. 
So what I see and and manifests itself right throughout the news and when we see these kind of things is undisciplined units. And the trend is unmistakable. So, uh, so that's what we'll do today. So on this Monday morning, um, good morning to everybody. Again, um, I would tell you that if you know somebody who has a, um, a gold star in their family, in their extended family, do something, go out of their, go out of your way for them this week to tell them that you care, that you, that, that even if nobody else does, that you wanted to reach out and you wanted to say, God bless you. You know, my thoughts and prayers are certainly with you. And here's a, here's a gift card to go have dinner. You know, I know it's just a, a bullshit token, but it's all that I can do. So with that said, give that stuff some thought. Good morning to you. We'll check the news and then you're going to hear from General Van Riper. So good morning. dedicated to um, every family that has a gold star anywhere near it. And uh, as the nation gets ready to celebrate a long weekend, um, you get ready to remember and be reminded of the sacrifice that your family makes every day. So this week is devoted to you. And God bless you. May God hold you in the palm of his hand. And may he hold that hand close to his heart. Yeah,
You're betraying your whole life if you don't say what you think. And you don't say it honestly and bluntly. What keeps you awake at night? Nothing. I keep other people awake at night. For this campus had prepared him well. <clears throat> I'm very confident that, thank you very much. <clears throat> if this was vodka, it'd be a lot better speech. <clears throat> But I'm not supposed to glamorize alcohol anymore. So, young folks, you ignore what I just said. We just have to execute. And we are executing every day. And Sergeant Major and I are very proud of what you do. Doesn't mean we can't get better. We don't. We don't want to make a mistake to learn. We don't want to lose to learn. We cannot lose if we have to go fight. We got to do what these Marines did here 75 years ago: persevere against difficult challenging conditions and odds and win. You gotta win. Check the weather in Marine Land. So we'll do that. Currently, it is partly sunny in 67 in Quantico. Down the coast of Camp Lejeune, pushing 90 degrees today. Sunny in 88. 29 Palms is sunny in 72. Camp Pendleton, sunny in 65. Camp Smith in Hawaii, dark cloudy in 70. Okinawa, dark cloudy, 76. Darwin cold, dark cloudy in 74, and in Oslo, cloudy in 50, 54. Currently in Costa Mesa, Newport Beach area of uh, Southern California, it is sunny in 83. Looking for a high today of 79, 75 tomorrow, 69 on Wednesday, 69 on Thursday, 71 on Friday. Let me go through the news with you today. And then uh, and then we'll go ahead and uh, I'll tee up General Van Riper for you. If you've never heard her, it's been a while. Um, it's a great interview. I listened to it over the weekend. And, um, and I can recall, I mean, he was a legend for being just a stickler in discipline. And uh, I didn't understand it, though. I thought it was chicken shit, like a lot of my peers did. And I lament that, you know, we didn't have an opportunity to listen to him, you know, and him talk about, let me give you the why behind this, boys and girls, because once you get the why, it's pretty sobering, right? 
And, um, yeah, I, I, uh, and again, what was the chicken shit about? In Garrison, it was the state of police of your building. It was the fact that your lights got turned off. Why? Because that was an order in the division. Your duty is supposed to go out and shut the lights off. Well, if your running lights are still on, right, then obviously somebody's not reading your orders, which was an indication of discipline. The fact that you had Marines go around and pick up the trash around the garbage cans and, uh, you know, in your area, that was something that he judged one. But it was the blocking and tackling of being disciplined on a daily basis. When you went to the field, you know, when you went to the field, you know, the uniformity of the way you packed, the way you prepared, why that uniformity was important, all important to, to the collective discipline of the organization. And that's what he expected. But I didn't understand it, right? We didn't have internet, right? So, you know, it was his ability to get out there and speak and explain it and, uh, and for his uh, commanders to do the same. And I will tell you that most of them, um, most of them did not do that. And so it was, uh, a lot of it fell on deaf ears. People just not smart enough to figure it out. So, anyway, um, go to the news. Interesting story in Stars of Stripe. That's at the top of the fold. Navy says it's charting a new course after a rash of problems. So, the Navy, still waiting on the Bonhomme Richard investigation. Still waiting to find out, was that actually arson? Was that actually arson? Haven't heard about that. Nothing to see here. Right, just one of our advanced big decks retrofitted for the F-35 went up in flames in port. Nothing to see here. Um, so here, this is what the article says. The Navy's speedy littoral combat ships had propulsion failures. The gun on its stealthy destroyer is a dud because of expensive ammo. Its newest aircraft carrier had problems with the system that launches aircraft. On top of that... Embarrassing photos of rusty ships online have underscored delays in maintaining warships made worse by the pandemic. The Navy's Navy's troubles have caused delays and cost billions of dollars. They come as tensions are growing in the South China Sea. Russia's Navy is emboldened. Iran's speedboats are harassing vessels in the Persian Gulf. Quote, are we ready to meet the threat from China? No, said Lauren Thompson, a defense analyst at the Lexington Institute. How about that? Your United States Navy. Admiral Mike Gilday, the Chief of Naval Operations, insists the Navy is now on a positive trajectory. But the Navy will have to rebuild confidence under congressional scrutiny as it prepares a new strategic plan that will include another long-term investment, unmanned vehicles. The Biden administration is readying a Navy Budget proposal this week to send to lawmakers. Yeah, the president's budget's coming out this week. The Navy fleet currently falls shy of 300 ships, despite a stated goal of 355. The Chinese fleet now outnumbers the U.S. Navy. And I think, you know, that outnumbers in, certainly in, uh, in I th- think it's total platforms. 
and then go to the region. Right? Right. Quote, the Chinese are closer to our goal than we are, said Republican Senator Susan Collins of Maine, who sits on the Appropriations Committee and wants to boost Navy spending. Now, just know this, Maine, shipbuilding country, right? Hmm. Hmm. Democratic Senator Jack Reed and Republican Senator Jim Inhofe, chairman and ranking member, right, ranking minority member of the Armed Service Committee, Senate type, have criticized delays and cost overruns on lead ships and urged the Navy to ensure technology is ready before putting it aboard. Does, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's like we want to buy the top-of-the-line technology that's not prove, proven, and then we get delays, and there's cost overruns, and now it's buying, instead of buying seven, we're buying four. It's just seeing, you know, it's like, I mean, how do you unscrew this? Listen to this. Quote, the Navy has got to get their derriere in gear, said Representative Rob Whitman, a Republican from Virginia, who describes the Navy is, as at one of those crossroads. The Navy's problem, as Thompson sees it, is that leaders rushed ambitious new ship classes into production, started construction before designs were finalized, and technology was fully tested. And they did that while being lobbied by shipbuilding companies who are being led by former naval, naval officers, that we, yeah, we can do this. Hey, you know we can, right? Quote, it tried too hard to leap ahead technologically at the beginning of the last decade. As a result, every vessel that it started had severe problems. Think about that. Every vessel that it started had severe problems. For example, the electric drive Zumwalt commissioned in 2016 was designed was designed to get close to shore to bombard land targets. But its 155-millimeter advanced gun system is being scrapped because each rocket-propelled GPS-guided shell costs nearly as much as a cruise missile. (laughs) Wait a minute. Nobody figured that shit out? Right? The most expensive ship in Navy history, meanwhile, is the newest aircraft carrier, the USS Gerald R. Ford. It has had problems with the system that launches jets and the elevators that move weapons, among other things. Are you kidding me? These are like fundamental pieces of technology in an aircraft carrier. And if it's not proven, how the hell do you include it? It was supposed to cost $10.3 billion, but the price tag has ridden to $13.3 billion and four weapons elevators are still not furnished, and the reliability of key systems is low, said Inhofe. These ship classes have cost, have taught the Navy costly lessons. Costs on the first ships in the classes were 23% to 155% higher than the original estimates. I mean, this is clown stuff, right? And then there's the whole idea of maintenance. Maintaining the existing fleet is also going to mean upgrades to the nation's four public shipyards and hiring and training thousands of workers. You think? It's called the cost of doing business. 
Uh, again, I, it's head shaking. Head shaking. Right? Um, Joe McKenzie in the news. So, General, here's the headline. U.S. scales back. As U.S. scales back in the Middle East, China may step in, according to CENTCOM General. May? You don't think that's going to happen? As the United States scales back its military presence across the Middle East to focus on great power competition in China and Russia, it risks giving those two countries a chance to fill the gap and expand their influence around the Gulf according to CENTCOM Commander Frank McKenzie. Let me get to his quotes. Quote, The Middle East, writ broadly, is an area of intense competition between the great powers, and I think that as we adjust our posture in the region, Russia and China will be looking very closely to see if a vacuum, vacuum opens that they can exploit. I think they see the United States shifting posture to look at other parts of the world, and they sense there may be an opportunity here. So what does that mean? China in Afghanistan? I agree completely that China needs to be the pacing threat we orient on. At the same time, we are a global power and we need to have a global outlook. And that means that you have the ability to consider the globe as a whole. Interesting stuff. Speaking of Russia, China cashing in on a U.S. void, McKenzie continued, I'm not sure it's actually going to turn out to be an opportunity for them when it's all said and done. I think we're going to have to play a very smart game to leverage what we have. The United States is a partner of choice. It's only when that option is not open to countries not open, our country's going to hedge and seek other opportunities. Yeah. I mean, if if Russia and China want to get involved in Afghanistan, good luck. Right? Another interesting story, right? Allies leaving rapidly as NATO ends Afghan mission. Some NATO allies and other coalition countries that first deployed service members to Afghanistan in the war's early years are leaving months ahead of September 11th deadline set by the Biden administration for all U.S. forces to depart. Oh, my God. So, yeah, our allies. Uh, Army leaders, these, these are all from Stars and Stripes this morning. Army leaders praise superstar soldier after Senator Ted Cruz criticizes her recruitment video. Now, much in the news has been the advertising, the woke, the quote-unquote woke advertising of the American military. And you've seen originally it was vis-a-vis, this is how China recruits. And you see you know, people jumping through fire and all the rest of this stuff, right? Um. And so um, U.S. Army leaders rallied around a soldier featured in a recruitment video clip that Senator Ted Ted Cruz mocked as a representation of an emasculated military. 
So then Cruz says, relative to the video, right? And that video is contrasted with the Russian video where service, where they have people, like I said, you know, jumping through fire, blah, 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 and all the rest of the things they do. Cruz tweets, I think, holy crap, perhaps a woke emasculated military is not the best idea. Okay, so two words in there, woke and emasculated. That, right, that gets everybody's attention. So then it becomes a defense of the corporal, right, not woke and emasculated. It becomes a defense of the person in the video. Cruz addressed the controversy in a separate tweet and said lefty commentators on Twitter were dishonestly claiming he was disparaging the military. We have the greatest military on earth, but Democratic politicians and woke media are trying to turn them into pansies, Cruz tweeted. A spokesman for Senator Cruz responded to Stars and Stripes. Senator Cruz passionately supports the brave men and women in the United States military and has repeatedly expressed concerns that Democratic politicians, left-wing bureaucrats, and the media are politicizing our armed forces to promote fringe woke agenda based on identity politics. Our military should be focused on winning wars, and we endanger our national security and our service members when they focus on anything else. So, again, the culture war that's going on in the United States. Here's an email. From the Wall Street Journal, uh, Beijing's renewed its crackdown on crypto markets. So, Beijing, very interesting, very interested in crypto markets, interestingly enough. Um, uh, that's the story about the, the Ryanair plane. Again, it's just grounding. That's not the right word. Hijacking, right? State-sponsored hijacking. And what's going to happen with all of that? So those are two. Those are two. Those are two interesting stories uh, from USNI News. USS Macon Island got back with the 15th Mew. Uh, had a chance to go down on on Friday. Uh, my nephew, uh, part of that, and. Uh, they were supposed to get off the ship on Thursday. That didn't happen. So uh, his mom, my cousin, Patty, she uh, spent the night. And uh, she was originally supposed to go home. Her plane got canceled, mercifully. So um, she, we went back down. And, uh, you know, let me just tell you, as much as I've seen it, and it was, and it was, and it was kind of weird because I had deployed from that place that we were. So it's a big, you know, parade deck. Uh, at Camp Horno, the home of the 1st Marine Regiment and 1st Battalion, 4th Marines, and BLT-14, that's their home. And um, so it's kind of weird because you're standing there and you can see pictures of deploying out of there, right, when the buses show up and crying kids and Everybody like uh, that night, and then you know the the joy of coming home and and uh, all of that, uh, and never gets old, never gets tired of watching it. You know, you see all these families so excited, 
right? All these, all these spouses, all these kids running around. And, um, so, uh, so he came, he came home, <laughs> right? First stop, Chick-fil-A. Second stop to get a new cell phone. And then we had dinner and, and hung out and whatnot. So it was a great night. So welcome home to everybody from uh, the 15th uh, Mew. Uh, you know, probably one of the most difficult deployments for a lot of different reasons, right? Uh, they were gone for probably 10 of the last 12 months. Uh, they lost eight Marines and, and one sailor in an, in an incident off the coast of California. Um, and uh, and then when they're out in the Pacific, I mean, you don't go any, you don't go to any Liberty ports now. You know, at best is you know on base libo. Yeah, at best is on base libo. So I mean, you can imagine. You can imagine, you know, just uh, you know, just all the tension, and and you know, all of a sudden one day you come home, and it's over. And uh, so welcome home to them, uh, and uh, uh, not the not the most. Uh, not the easiest deployment that uh, a unit's ever had uh, when you combined uh, their trip down to the border that ate up some of their training time, when you combine the COVID, all the COVID craziness that was going on. So when you combine all of that, uh, pretty, pretty, uh, pretty challenging period of time. Um, another story that's been in the news and, can, and keeps coming back in the news is uh, this is an Associated Press story written by uh, Robert Burns. So when you see Robert Burns' name on something, um, normally he doesn't write about, you know, coming up this weekend if you're a veteran kind of a story. He doesn't, yeah, that's not, that's not the story Robert Burns writes. Headline, Growing Mystery of Suspected Energy Attacks on U.S. Personnel Draws Concern. So the first I, I remember hearing of this was in Cuba. Um, The Biden administration is facing new pressure to resolve a mystery that has vexed its predecessors. Is an adversary using a microwave or radio wave weapon to attack the brains of U.S. diplomats, diplomats, spies, and personnel? The number of reported cases of possible attack is sharply growing, and lawmakers from both parties, as well as those believed to be affected, are demanding answers, but scientists and government officials aren't yet certain about who might have been behind the attacks. If the, if the symptoms could have been caused inadvertently or by surveillance equipment, or if the incidents are actually at- attacks. Whatever the official review concludes could have enormous consequences. Confirmation that a U.S. adversary has been conducting damaging attacks against U.S. personnel could unleash calls for a forceful response from the United States. The problem has been labeled Havana Syndrome because the first cases affected personnel in 2016 in the U.S. Embassy in Cuba. At least 130 cases across the government are now under investigation. Up from several dozen last year, the National Security Council is leading the investigation. Particularly alarming are revelations of at least two possible incidents in the Washington, D.C. area, including one case near the White House in November 
in which an official reported dizziness. A new higher number of possible cases was first reported by the New York Times. So again, you see the story, and it seems to be growing. The question is, is it something we're doing to ourselves because they can't pinpoint it? Or is it some form of advanced energy weapon that we cannot detect yet? Top five stories in early bird. Number one, National Guard mission to provide security is ending at the Capitol. You know, all the craziness in our country. <laughs> it's honestly, it, it's amazing to watch. And it's, you know, it's it's done for political theater and it's so old. You know, it's so old. It's ridiculous. You know, it's just like the CDC comes out and says that, yeah, if you're vaccinated, you don't have to wear a mask. Nancy Pelosi says, oh, no, you're going to wear a mask. Like, like, what are we doing? You know, what are we doing? Do we even know? And but I mean, you see this theater of the absurd and it and again, it's all done. Um it's all done for um, for political consumption. It's not because it's, oh, oh, yeah, no, we believe this is absolutely the right thing to do. No, it's, again, it's just, I don't know. You watch the news, I mean, pretty discouraging in this nation. So, anyway. So, yeah, the National Guard mission is ending. Congratulations. Well done, unarmed boys and girls. Number two, because we don't trust them with weapons, for God's sakes. Fort Belvoir, the cruiser Antietam, under consideration for renaming by the DOD commission. Wait a minute. Well, why don't, let's start with the marquee. Let's start with the marquees. Fort Bragg, Fort Polk, Fort Hood. So I don't understand, like, why um, some of these things are, like, uh, I don't know. Is it just when they're going to get to them? Anything named for a Confederate event, right, was done essentially to placate Southern politicians. Fort Lee, Fort Hill, Fort Pickett, Fort Benning, Fort Gordon, Fort Rucker. Fort Polk, Fort Hood, all those. There's, there's a list for you, right? Find somebody else. Yeah. But, you know, but again, to me, don't bleach your history. Explain why those bases were named for who they were named for. Explain the politics of Reconstruction. Explain binding the, the wounds of the nation after a war that was the most bloody war in our history, and our population was at 31 million for the United States, I think in the Civil War. I think that's true. I think I looked it up. I'll look it up right now. U.S. population in 1865 was, I want to say 31 million. U.S. population in 1865 was... 31 million people. 31 million people 
10% of our current population, we had our bloodiest war. So in binding the wounds of that war, um, yeah, that took, that took some doing, okay? And so explain the history of Reconstruction. Explain the politics of Reconstruction. And so use this as an opportunity to teach. They won't, right? They won't. Sad. So that's number two. Number three, Air Force Inspector General takes over review of fired Space Force commander's speech. So straight to the Inspector General. So he's taken over the investigation into the conduct of Lieutenant Colonel Matthew Loheim. I'm sorry, Lohmeyer. A Space Force officer who was fired last week after publicly criticizing the Pentagon's diversity push and what he believes is Marxism spreading in the ranks. Does he have the right to say that? Why was he fired? I'm, we all know, right? Loss of confidence, right? Lieutenant General S- Stephen Whiting, head of the Space Force's operational command, removed Lohmeyer commander of the 11th Space Warning Squadron at Buckley Air Force Base in Colorado from his post on May 14th. According to an Air Force spokesman, the lieutenant colonel was reassigned to an unnamed job. At issue are comments Lomar made on the Information Operation podcast while promoting a self-published book, Irresistible Revolution, Marxism's Goal of Conquest and Unmaking of the American Military. At at Lieutenant General Whiting's directions, Space Operations Command was looking into whether Lohmeyer's comments amounted to, quote, prohibited partisan political activity, according to Military.com, which first reported the story. The IG decided to launch its own inquiry, quote, due to the complexity and the sensitivity of the issues under consideration, as well as potential for Department of Air Force-wide impact. Know this, right? The Space Force is a department of the Air Force. Okay? Yeah, much like the Marine Corps is part of the Department of the Navy. The men's department, right? Lomar argues that the Defense Department's efforts to further diversify the force and bring a multitude of experiences and perspectives to the table, as well as similar initiatives in other U.S. institutions, are wrecking civil society. He told Military.com he did not intend to engage in partisan politics and that Buckley's public affairs office and legal counsel said DOD didn't need to review the contents of his book before publication. The book, now a number one bestseller among military policy offerings on Amazon, claims that federal agencies are vessels of various schools of thought that are rooted in Marxist ideology, which is Black Lives Matter, right? And the... 1619 project and all of that which become which which hails from that right bent on the destruction of american's history and the founding philosophy of western traditions specifically judeo-christian values and of patriotism and conservatism so anyway um yeah that going on first first amendment in the military. Number four, VA to lift all restrictions on cemetery visits ahead of Memorial Day. You know what? I get after the VA all the time. So I just want to say 
Congratulations on that one. Entirely appropriate. Number five, CENTCON commander, U.S. scales back. As U.S. scales back in in the Middle East, China may step in. So that is a look at your news today, an extended look. Now, um, don't touch that dial. So this is uh, General P.K. Van Riper, if you've never heard him. And he's talking about discipline on a week that we're going to talk about discipline. So more of Almering Radio coming up right now. So whenever I have a guest on, I always try to play, play uh, age-appropriate music. And uh, joining me today is uh, is uh, retired Marine Corps Lieutenant General Paul K. Van Riper. So are you a Stones fan? No. In fact, uh, you'd have had to go back to the mid-50s. You'd get back in <laughs> Elvis and uh, <clears throat> some of that era before you hit my music. All right. All right. Well, next time I'll, 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 I'll remember that. Uh, 50s on 5 when you're listening to satellite radio. That's what I'm tuned to. 50s on 5. You know what? I know that because those numbers, they go 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9. And That's you right. Can, there you go. The, um, first of all, so thanks for doing this. I've been looking forward to it. And the email I've, uh, I've received since I announced it, so are a lot of other people. Uh, so uh, appreciate you coming on and being the first installment of a series that we'll do here on All Marine Radio entitled On Discipline. So thank you very much. The um, first question, uh, let's talk about a little bit about your career before we talk about um, about discipline. Uh, uh, born and raised where? I was uh, born in Brownsville, Pennsylvania, about 35 miles south of Pittsburgh. I lived most of my life, uh, young life, in suburbs of Pittsburgh, a little t- uh, town called Dormont. And then uh, in 1956, I enlisted in the local Marine Corps Reserve. This was long before we had the 4th Division and there was a, an association. There simply were units in town. So this was the 12th Infantry Battalion, U.S. Uh, MCR. How, and, now, uh, how, how, does, how, how did the Marine Corps get on your radar, sir? Uh, when I was uh, about 12 years old, I'm a twin brother. He's also a Marine. Mm-hmm. We uh, went with our dad and mom one night. She was going to do some grocery shopping. Uh, while she was in the store, my dad was in the front seat, and a newspaper boy came up and sold my dad a paper. He opened it up across the steering wheel, and he said, uh, boys, the, the war in Korea is going to be over pretty soon. We said, why is that, Dad? He said, they're sending in the Marines. And, of course, that raised a lot of questions. What are, who are the Marines? Who are the Marines? And he had been too old for uh, World War II, but he had this view of, I think, uh, the stereotypical view of Marines and what they'd accomplished during World War II. So he, he began to tell us all about them and intrigued our interest. And, of course, in the 50s, you were subject to the draft, and both my brother and I decided uh, we wanted to enlist, and so we enlisted the local reserve, went off to boot camp in the fall of 1956. So that's a, so you go off to boot camp, and you become a reservist, but obviously uh, you attend college. Where did you go to school? Well, uh, after after recruit training, and the um we had some fantastic drill instructors, none more than Donald Neff. Uh, he's a retired master sergeant now, and I still stay in touch with him. In fact, uh, at the 40th anniversary, not of the day, but of the, of the year of my graduation from uh, recruit training at Paris Island, I reviewed a graduation parade, and to my left was standing retired um, Marine Donald C. Neff. Uh, 
he, he, he set me off on the straight and narrow. I always say what my mom and dad taught me and what uh, then Staff Sergeant Neff taught me would put, put me in good stead. So um, when both my brother and when we came back, we enrolled in college, but right from the outset we had the, the goal of uh, trying to gain a commission. And so we stayed in the reserve while we were going to school, and then uh, it took a while. We had to work our way through school. So we came back and were commissioned in 1963. The, uh, so where did you go to school? I, I went to a small college in uh, a little town, again, south of Pittsburgh, called California. Right. And it was called then California State College. Since it's been called the University of California in Pennsylvania. <laughs> so you can imagine the confusion. That, uh, <laughs> as. But my brother went to the University of Pittsburgh, and I quite honestly thought I got a better education because the professors would often – we'd come out of the classroom, go to the snack bar, continue the discussions where he had uh, largely graduate assistants teaching most of his courses, and we were getting it from the, the real experts. Talk to us about your um, – in your career, sir. So you um, – and uh, I want to kind of – kind of if you could give us a thumbnail sketch of, of your career, and then I want to come back and, and relate yeah, and, and begin the discussion about discipline. So, so give everybody, some people who may not know you, believe that or not, uh, uh, a thumbnail of your of your career in the Marine Corps. I always consider myself a Marine first, but I was in the infantry from the time I got the MOS out of boot camp all the way to uh, the time I was became a general officer. So I served in all three Marine divisions. I saw combat uh, on five different occasions. Uh, first of all, in the Dominican Republic during the rebellion. The uh, 2nd Marine Division, we went, went engaged in that. And then I was an advisor to the Vietnamese Marine Corps, was wounded and evacuated uh, in, into an ed assignment, went back as a company commander for Mike Company, 3rd Battalion, 7th Marines. And then I had the opportunity to serve with the United Nations, uh, their peacekeeping force in uh, Palestine. Saw a lot of uh, action up in southern Lebanon, obviously not involved in it, but uh, as an observer in, in the middle of it, trying to separate the PLO from Israelis and so forth, and then uh, Desert Shield, Desert Storm. The uh, served overseas, Okinawa, in the Middle East, a uh, number of deployments to the Med, sort of the typical career. I was active duty for more than almost 35 years. And, and then, how did you uh, how did you end your career, sir? I was the uh, commanding general at Quantico, the Combat Development Command, which was a great assignment. Um, the officers who had set that thing up to do, do combat development had put together a fantastic organization, and I always said it was like uh, driving a well-engineered, finely-tuned race car. It was, a, it was a great organization. Now, for those of us on active duty, um at the time, you're, you were, if, if somebody were to say discipline to me, I would like, I would have this instantaneous automatic response. I would say, Ben Riper. And um, you became a legend in the late 80s and the 90s for, uh, for, for your devotion uh, to discipline. And combine that with your shaved head, and you were a fairly intimidating guy. I, and I would tell, I'll confess right up front, I did not understand it, and I was part of a large group of people that didn't get it until later um, when when I heard Colonel Zinni at the time speak, and then subsequent to that, I began to understand more. 
talk to, to, to me and explain to everybody, where does your devotion to the subject of discipline begin in your career? Well, it actually begins in recruit training with the gentleman I mentioned before, Staff Sergeant Neff. Uh, there was a Staff Sergeant Dave Johnson who was on the I&I staff in our reserve unit, and he kind of took my brother and I when we were Lance Corporals under his wing and, and schooled us in the, <clears throat> the ins and outs of being a leader in the Marine Corps. And I always recall him telling us that the same Marine who gets drunk comes back into the squad bay and trips over a locker box and <clears throat> raises hell uh, is the same one that's most likely to give away an ambush in combat. And he kept telling us there's <clears throat> what you do in peacetime directly reflects what you're going to do in wartime. And this myth of the uh, screw-up in peacetime suddenly becoming the hero when combat comes is just that, a myth. It's so extraordinary that we do remember the, the handful of soldiers and Marines that might have done something like that. But there is a direct relationship. I, uh, I saw it a number of places, but probably most spectacularly when I was a company commander uh, in, in Vietnam. And what happened in the first couple of firefights we were in. So if I could just illustrate. Hey, yeah, well, if, I, you, if, you could, if you could frame it, sir, the, um, because Vietnam is, is uh, one of the things about hosting this program that I've learned probably the most about is Vietnam. And, the, and it was so different depending on where you were geographically and what year you were there. Um, so could you just frame for us what years were you, what year were you, you were there twice. Uh, could, you, I, yeah, could you frame what years you were there and then where you were? I was there in 1965, wounded in early 66, 7 February, and evacuated uh, back to the States. Once I recovered in the Philadelphia Naval Hospital, I went to uh, the basic school, uh, was a staff platoon commander for three platoons, and then taught in company tactics. So in terms of being prepared for combat, I'd already been seasoned in the Dominican Republic. I'd had the experience with the Vietnamese Marines, taught company tactics, then went through what was amphibious warfare school, so I had a pretty good handle on staff actions. And where were you? Then, where, where did you get wounded, sir? What part of Vietnam? Uh, I was with uh, a unit, a Vietnamese unit, and an airborne unit. We did a heliborne assault on a VC camp south of Saigon, and uh, I was shot in the stomach, uh, destroyed my spleen, and had to have a, my intestines sewed up. Uh, lucky as could be, because the bullet went out between the ribs. I've oh. still got a scar in the back of my. Um, back in between these ribs, it looks like a bullet sideways. And okay, all right. C continue. So, so you wind up at the uh, at the uh, at the basic school teaching, and that kind of completes uh, your preparation to go a second time. Go a second time. I go from there to uh, amphibious warfare school. So, uh, you know, I, there could not have been better preparation for being a company commander. So, we're in one of our first firefights, and a squad leader gets wounded, and he's laying down in a corner of our rice paddy, and we're trying to get a medevac for him, but the uh, Marines are trying to find the important pieces of equipment and, or gear that he has. They're looking for the map. Where's his compass? Where's his shackle sheet with the codes on it? And if you ever, at that time, if you ever just counted the pockets in your utilities in your flak jacket, the possibility it might be in his pack or he might have stuck in his helmet, it, it took a while to figure where this stuff was. And I said to myself, why doesn't every unit leader carry the stuff in the same place? So we wound up. The map was in the left uh, cargo pocket. The compass was on the right side of the uh, your harness. Uh, you had an air panel up underneath your, 
your helmet liner. So every key piece of gear, we knew where it was. Somebody's wounded. Right away, you pick it up and go. Then we had a, a firefight, and I said, um, throw, a, um, throw a yellow smoke. Came back, don't have any yellow smoke. Throw a green smoke. Don't have a green smoke. Well, what the hell do you have? And I said, this is, <clears throat> this is done. Uh, and we ran out of ammunition. So I sat down with the platoon commander and said, we're going to have a standard of what we're going to carry and what, where we're going to carry it. And so I'll have a feel, you know, if, if for example, each squad has two yellow, two green, two red smokes, I'll know when we're getting low when I, after I uh, give you instructions or I see, see it happening on the battlefield. And if, if we've got 3,000 rounds and 7.62 for the M60 machine gun, I'll kind of have a feel when we're getting low on ammo. And that's what we did. Uh, and the first thing that happens is when you're getting ready to go on an operation, the platoon commander stands in front. He looks across the squad leaders, and he sees three compasses right in the same place. He doesn't have to <clears throat> walk up to each squad. He's got a compass. Where is it? No, he sees it. Um, and so it was what I call that good order and discipline and uniformity. Now, that, now that, that's not uniformity for uniformity's sake. That's uniformity for a purpose. Now, you can go to the extreme on this. Uh, one of the examples I thought was kind of foolish some unit leaders usually get excited about whether you put your boot lace left over right or right over left. I said, who cares? The boot's laced up. <clears throat> That's uniformity for uniformity. There's the only reason for it is for a purpose. And I don't think I've, <clears throat> in my career, I ever asked somebody to, to uh, meet a standard that there wasn't a purpose behind it. But, you know, well, and we'll talk about this here in a little bit, sir, but you know where that goes, though, right? You're, you know, all of a sudden you're the character of, of of the whole concept of, oh, this is all chicken shit, and we who fought know what's really important and things like that. And so, so, I, I, so, so when you come back from your company command tour, um, in terms of your thoughts about discipline, you you proved this stuff and it's solid in your head based on the lessons you saw that 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 being disciplined in combat saves lives. Absolutely, and if anybody has any doubt, any of the one who's whatever amount of combat they claim these days, tell them to come to uh, one of my company's reunions. We have them every other year. We're going to have one this August and talk to those Marines that I uh, was privileged to command and see what they say about that kind of discipline. They tell and and some of them had the same. Uh, the same uh, sort of reaction when I first went in and began tightening them up that this was uh, chicken shit type stuff, and they soon realized, hey, we're a good we're a good outfit and we're a good outfit because we do these things, and uh, th they still get together like, say, every two years and proud as can be of their service in Vietnam. And, and so, where did where did Mike three seven fight? And uh, you went back. That was in 1968. Yes. Yeah, we were we were on uh, Hill 55, Hill 10. Hill 37, all, all these are uh, 10, 15 miles west of Da Nang. And it was a, we had a lot of heavy combat. Generally, we were close to their table of organization of 200. We'd range from the, uh, after combat, we might be down in the 170s. Generally, they were up around 200 Marines. Now, in the 10 months I had to company, uh, to give you an order of magnitude of the, uh, the kind of combat we're in, we had 100% casualties uh, across those 200. That's obviously a lot of Marines that went the whole whole uh, year without getting wounded, but then there were those who came, and there was a short time and got wounded. So the ins and outs, it was over um, over 100%, 74 of which were KIAs. So 
Uh, I don't want to hear from too many folks about <clears throat> what combat's like and what close combat is like, uh, because there aren't that many, and, and I've had the, the, uh, the, I guess the duty is the only way to express it to personally kill a Viet Cong. So, um, you know, when you get, you talk about close when they destroy, I got a pretty good idea what it's all about. Well, you know, sir, it, it's real interesting. Um, I, I, before we came on air, we were talking about, uh, about, uh, you know, that's really the last time we had an enemy that would mortar you, that would use artillery and would close with you. Since then, you know, we've had people lay down in front of us, but, you know, they haven't closed with us. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and we fought essentially an insurgency with IDs and, and guys who know our ROE, know where our QRFs are, and they play this ROE game. We have not fought uh, an opponent since you fought it since you fought one that would close with us and come come to put our head on a stick we have not done that in 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 low all these all these years so i think your 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 thoughts and 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 your peers thoughts about what discipline is are a little bit different because of your experience and now when we talk peer to peer um contest um i think your your thoughts are are as important as ever and probably something we should go down i want to ask you um a road that we should go down. I want to ask you before we talk about your time in the second division. I saw somebody who I saw a headline relative to this whole discussion. And since you were head of the Marine Corps University, you can comment on this. Is it is it a sad comment when a, an officer would write general stick the strategy um, uh, about General Furness's uh, intent relative to the second division? Yeah, I, I won't get into a definition of strategy, but for uh, a general of the division is not dealing in strategy. He's got to be certainly uh, cognizant of what strategic thought is and what uh, strategic goals, but at best he's, he's uh, high-level tactics or dealing in operational art. But uh, I would agree with the comment, but, but with this proviso, <clears throat> anything that is found wrong with the way things should be, according to Marine Corps standards, above the grade of corporal, means that somebody is, that some corporal's failed. Or if the division commander's saying this, a corporal, a sergeant, all of your staff NCOs, your company grading, your field grade officers have failed. Uh, when I was in the division and I'd find trash laying out right in the middle of a, of a, <clears throat> in front of a battalion headquarters, why in the, why in the hell should the division commander find out? Where was every Marine that walked by, corporal and above, that didn't do something about it? Uh, and it's the same with a dirty rifle. <clears throat> whatever it is. So those telling the general to stick to it, that's correct. <clears throat> Do your jobs, and he can stick to operational art and high-level tactics. All right, let's talk about you. So you go to the 2nd Division, and um, and you are uh, uh, and you put out this guidance. Did you put out this guidance on day one? And, and the, gui- the, the, the three documents I'm looking at are your philosophy of leadership, uh, words of advice to subordinates, and... Uh, what will become known as your the 21 rules, but the subject is specific requirements or 21 rules. Uh, did you have those things ready to go, and were they issued uh, soon after your assumption of command, or were these things that you developed after you had assumed command? No, yes, uh, and all three of them were the final results of command from battalion <laughs> regiment, a, a Marine barracks. I, I was fortunate to have a number of commands. And as a battalion commander, I made a few notes, and then I would, with experience, I would expand or modify them. 
And so when I was, knew I was going to be assigned the division, I sat down and wrote those. Now, the 21 rules were specific in terms of what I was seeing, not just in the 2nd Division, but around the Marine Corps. Right. But that's not unusual. Uh, the same thing happened after Korea. The same thing happened after Vietnam. And we saw the same thing after Desert Storm. And I imagine what uh, what the Marine Corps is seeing now is is not unexpected in, in relation to that. Could, uh, could you people come back from war and kind of feel that, uh, well, we don't have to live up to these standards. And it's just wrong. It's just the way it, it's sort of a natural phenomenon. And somebody's got to bite the bullet and tighten it up. The um, So... Uh, the, the first two documents were refined versions. The 21 rules, a couple of those things I had before, but it was general, my general observations of what was happening across the Marine Corps, certainly not an indictment of any particular unit or previous commanders. It was it was widespread. So um, it's interesting because uh, one of the interesting parts of this whole discussion is the kind of institutional ebb and flow as – you know, the, the the senior Lance Corporal comes back from combat and say, yeah, all this stuff's chicken shit. And it, what's interesting in today's Marine Corps is we don't shine boots anymore. Or, you know, Marines don't shine boots anymore. You don't pressure utilities. They come out of the, the, the dryer and you, you, you snap them once. You put your rank insignia on and uh, and off you go. So there's there's less and less required of Marines. And But it, I think that this this institutional thing about – Going into a conflict and then and then coming out of a conflict, the way we view discipline, and then that part of because there was an awful long time between the end of Vietnam and the start of Desert Storm, and uh, and for the Marine Corps, and I know because I served in that period of time where you know uh, you know General Smith uh, and the Eighth Marines were the only people doing anything in the Marine Corps, and that's why we all hated the Eighth Marine Regiment because they were the only ones getting any ribbons and badges um, going around. But the rest of us lived in that peacetime Marine Corps devoted to MNU, Irish penance, and inspections, and did not realize how good that served us until it was our turn to go, and we knew the exacting nature of what the Marine Corps required, and we've been taught it that way. So, So to me, the institution does go through that ebb and flow. And, and can you talk about what was it like, you know, as a Marine officer in the 70s when the Marine Corps went through this as well? Well, the, the Marine Corps reached a low point probably of the, the entire history coming out of Vietnam because you had discipline problems, you had race problems, you had alcohol problems, you had drug problems. And you were trying to solve all of these things that are societal ills and at the same time, rebuild the basic skills in the force. So it was, uh, it, the, there are several things that uh, I could indicate to you that were manifestations of the problem. When uh, I went into uh, 1st Battalion, 8th Marines, the, I was the uh, ops officer, S3. The uh, Battalion XO had just required all of the platoon commanders to turn in their handcuffs. Why handcuffs? Because Marines got out of control, they had to handcuff him. He collected 35 sets of handcuffs in the battalion. Um, the division every night had a company on riot control duty. They were simply to respond to riots among the troops. Uh, when I was a when I was a platoon commander, the officer of the day carried a sword. It was just ceremonial. Uh, we all carried 45s during this period, and on occasion they they were needed to to control things. Uh, good order and discipline had just gone out the window. 
And without the good order and discipline, you can't even begin to, to begin to develop the combat skills, which is the whole purpose of the Marine Corps' existence. So you go you go through that, and now um, in 1991, you become the division commander of the 2nd Marine Division. And talk about, as, as you put this guidance out, what was the response to it? Did people buy it right away? Did people look at you, and, and did some of the similar strains of the discussion go on like they are going on today? Um, the story about the 2nd Marine Division and General Furness has been at, above the fold on the Marine Corps Times website for easily a week, I think. And then before that, there was a, the story that preceded that. So the only reason that story stays there if it, is if it gets clicked on, uh, because we all know how things work these days. Did did Were you surprised at the response? Or, or talk to us about the response you got as you put that out. I, I was, yes. In fact, what's interesting is I began to see some of these complaints, and then I saw a couple references to what I'd done as if I'd done it different and what I did was right. I did the exact same damn thing that that he did. No no difference than what Dave has has done. Uh, and I had the same reaction, but you didn't have the sort of spotlight media have now, or obviously with the uh, social media, things didn't fly around. It, it, these were letters to editors, uh, complaints to the local newspaper. So they were back column. Uh, it was probably the most notoriety was a column in the Armed Forces Journal, which was a professional well, pretty widespread magazine at the time, and uh, it kind of surprised me. I, I thought, you know, this is all this is all basic stuff. This is what uh, Staff Sergeant Neff was teaching me. This is what Staff Sergeant Johnson taught me. Uh, and I, I would really get irritated, angry, when I'd be out for a run at noontime, and I see things like standing lights on, or I see trash laying around, and I, I developed this policy of, if I see something amiss outside of your barracks. You, you have an immediate free inspection. So I'd be running and I'd see something that was, I mean, I'm not talking about a few scraps of paper. I'm talking about actual trash and garbage laying around, stacks of it. So I'd go in the barracks and never, without fail, without fail, every time I went inside of a barracks that was a mess outside, was a mess inside. Racks weren't made. <clears throat> trash cans were overflowing inside. The uh, water running in the heads, lights left on. And it's the same thing with individual Marines. I found in the days when we did shine brass and shine boots, if I stepped in front of a Marine, his brass wouldn't shine, his rifle was dirty. <clears throat> there was always a direct connection. So uh, uh, it, so I was irritated that corporals and sergeants and right up the chain of command weren't doing, the, doing their duty. I, I wanted to spend my time on the issues that general officers and division commanders could spend their time, not on what uh, is really Really, Lance Corporal and Corporal business. So as this thing unfolds, right, it, it, so, um, and, and again, it's unfolded in a very similar way in terms of um, it's kind of exploded, right, in, in now with social media being more powerful and, and you have things like, um, you know, Terminal Lance out there and that, you know, uh, you know, it immediately gets on that and then on the other bulletin boards. It's almost one of the things that, that I've been, um, it, it, it just is kind of an observer. And I have, you know, both my sons are Marines, and so we have interesting discussions about it, um, is that it's almost like there's this indignant response about how dare you. Our culture has changed a lot since the culture that went to Vietnam. I mean, those kids were still, they were raised tough. 
kids are not raised the same way in our culture. And if you look at the 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 stories out of the the, the special forces uh, community is, is is dealing with relative to to different um, trials that the court martials that they have going on. If you look at the uh, the, the events uh, that the Navy deals with, particularly in the Seventh Fleet, to my you know to me, which is a lot of uh, poor discipline. Uh, out there and, and a lack of professionalism, you see these strains and our ability to look inward to me is 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 almost at issue here. Um, I'm curious if you, your thoughts about the culture that, that exists today and how much of our culture can the Marine Corps absorb and still locate, close with and destroy, whether it be the Russians, the Chinese or anybody else. What are your thoughts on how culture impacts this and, and, and our ability to have uh, measured, articulate discourse on the subject? Well, let's take the combat skills first. Uh, I think, well, I'm convinced the Marine Corps never had the sort of talent, the the level of, high level of training at uh, small unit level right up through major units that it has today. Uh, I recall I would see a Marine working on a sand table or something out of 29 Palms. And in the back of my mind, what, what I see him doing, I think, oh, there's a couple of lieutenants there <clears throat> working this out. And I'd go up and it would be two corporals. Uh, so the responsibility has gone down to the to the uh, more junior ranks, and they handle it well. Uh, <clears throat> they have a skill level that my, my generation didn't even come close to in terms of weapons and tactics and uh, understanding the professional arms. Uh, and most of them have at least heard that you, what you do in garrison can't be different than what you do in combat. So if you if you believe in mission-type tactics in combat, you can't have a rigid <coughs> uh, top-down follow-my-orders in garrison. You have to have a mission-type orders in garrison. But for some reason, they can't connect that to the things we're talking about, and that's the state of your, state of your barracks, the state of your uniform, uh, what your vehicles look like, <clears throat> what your weapons look like, uh, because you know the examples I've used have all been cleanliness and trash and, right. and uh, so forth. But I'd go into armories, uh, and I'd find the same sort of difficulties in army in the armories with weapons that hadn't been turned in for um, for maintenance, with uh, weapons that had been deadlined for months. I didn't see machine guns that had been deadlined for six months, and nobody's doing anything about it. <clears throat> no reason a, a, a division commander should ever find something like that. So the, the, the culture is, uh, on one side, I think it's good. It's just trying to get the connection between what, for any for any better words, are good order and discipline and everything the Marines do on a day-to-day basis. And it seems like a, a structure is, is also something that, that, you know, people look at and they're like, ah, oh, like, are you kidding me that, that you should be in? And, and I, I just, I, I was, uh, I was going over your 21 rules. Um, and talk about your, uh, it's interesting. My son, my oldest just, uh, uh, left the basic school as a, as an, as a SPC and as an instructor and whatnot. And so he's headed down to, uh, Fort Benning to go to school. And, uh, so we were talking and I said, Hey, if I could give you one piece of advice, he said, he looked at me and he said, yeah. And mind you, I'm his father who doesn't know anything, but no, I have, <laughs> our son's a, he's a colonel now, but I've been through the, through the whole thing from second lieutenant on. <laughs> and so, uh, I said, inspect. And he said, 
he just looked at me and I said, if you inspect it, they'll give it to you. Right. And they're, they're, they're blank canvas and what you define for them, uh, and what you inspect, they will absolutely give you. And that whole expect what you inspect is absolutely the most spot on advice ever for a commander. And, uh, so I, I, I'm curious in, in, in those rules, you know, rooms were getting inspected on a daily basis. Uh, so explain that whole, you know, inspection thing for people that don't, don't understand it. Well, let me see. If, if you don't inspect, uh, things begin to come apart. Even your staff and COs and sometimes, unfortunately, officers will take shortcuts. We're getting ready to do a crest hike. Uh, and I'm walking through the, I'm going to walk through to make sure all the Marines got the kind of gear we're supposed to have. And I see this staff sergeant whose pack looks particularly squared away. I open up in his damn box. He put a box in the pack. Nothing, nothing, nothing's supposed to have. Uh, well, where was the platoon commander? Where was the company commander? Why the hell is a battalion commander? Did I find a staff in seal with a box when he's supposed to have the prescribed gear? So uh, you don't, you obviously don't inspect from top to bottom every single Marine, but you've got to inspect enough that people understand what your standards are and know that they're not going to skate. So, so at the squad level, uh, one of the things that, that I read was that, that rooms ought to be inspected on a daily basis. I think most Marines that hear that would hear that now would say, "Are you crazy?" Well, if you if you don't, if somebody doesn't look in there, pretty soon racks aren't made, trash isn't taken out, uh, contraband is brought in, uh, all kinds of things happen. Interesting. Interesting. The um, is there any part of this of this discussion uh, on discipline that you found more interesting than than any other part, sir? No, like I said before, it's it's, it's deja vu. Um, I've been through it now post Korea because I came in right after the Korean War. Saw it after Vietnam. Saw it after Desert Shield, Desert Storm. So it's just the the fourth cycle of it, and. Uh, you know, of course, after each of the previous cycles, I thought, well, we've learned from this, and we'll never have it again. It's just the nature of things. When you come out of combat, there's a, uh, a tendency not to want to get back to what what are the basics of, of good order and discipline. So give people some advice. So um, we've, we've, we've seen what General Furness has put out. We've heard all the hoopla that surrounds it. Uh, if you're a company commander, a battalion commander, um, give them some advice from somebody who's done it in wartime, in peacetime, done it over the course of decades. Uh, how, do, how do we look in, inward? What are the things that, that you would do? Uh, were you in a similar situation? And we're hearing this kind of advice from a major general for the first time. How would you handle it? I, I would talk to those corporals and sergeants and say, I want you to be part of the solution. I don't want you to be the problem. Uh, I want to do what generals <laughs> are educated and have the experience to do, and that's, uh, as I say, order tactics, think about the future plans, think about training of large units. They, they shouldn't be out there doing the most basic corporal and sergeant-type duties. So help me out. Be a part of the solution. Don't be a problem for me. And if I'm finding this kind of stuff, then you're not doing what you're supposed to do, your duties, and it's gravitating all the way to the top. And, of course, every uh, staff NCO, Every company grade officer and every field grade officer in between that corporal sergeant and the major general ought to <clears throat> kind of slide down in their chair embarrassed that they're not that they're not providing the supervision for those uh, young NCOs. 
What a qu- I want to ask you a question that's come up on this program, um, and that is um, often uh, the subject of the fact that we've seemingly emasculated our staff NCOs. That, that when the Marine Corps I came into in 1983, the staff NCOs were pissed because I want to say the Commandant put out in Almar that if you assign somebody um, EMI, Right. Go dig a fighting position. Go dig a mortar pit, a machine gun position. Right. You had to periodically throughout the course of the day go out and check on them. And they were pissed about that. Like, what is, what is the world coming to? Right. Why do I got to go out and waste my time and check on them? Right. Which today we don't, I don't think we even do that anymore. Um, and then all the tools that, that staff NCOs, who are the foremen of the Marine Corps um, and the NCOs who, who are likewise, um, they are the people that, that, that get it done, that shove it through, that, that, that crack the whip and make things happen. They are the, – the tools that they've used historically have been taken away. And I don't mean physical punishment, but now that uh, uh, you, you, can, you can assign them an essay, which you know is the equivalent of what a, a grammar school teacher would do in terms of discipline. Um, have we emasculated – you know, I mean, the whole issue of yelling, right – you know, you you yelled at me. You're hazing me. Um, thoughts on that? I've got uh, I got some sympathy, but not a lot. Okay. The uh, I, I was as a young officer was what you call a screamer. I I would raise my voice, chew but unmercifully. Uh, I found out as I got a little bit more senior that there were other better ways to do it. Uh, many times a Marine is embarrassed when you, you find something, and just that embarrassment will cause him to, to get corrected. Um, I can't tell you, in the last, since I've been retired now more than 20 years, and have run into a Marine, I'll be up at Quantico down at Camp Lejeune, or one of these Marines from a rifle company from Vietnam, will say, sir, do you remember when? I have absolutely no recollection, but it's something I disciplined them for, I, I counseled them on, that stuck with them all these years because it had such an impact. And then I began to reflect, oh, uh, when I was uh, when, when a captain said something to me and I was a young lance corporal, I still remember what they said. So uh, there's there's more of an an effect than you might think with uh, with good good counseling. And some of the things we did in the past. And actually were hazing and, of course, led to unnecessary injuries and uh, just weren't appropriate type leadership. And when they've talked about the old Corps, uh, in particular, they're thinking about the days uh, right after Korea, right after Vietnam, you didn't have the same uh, quality of uh, across the board of Marines you have today. You had great Marines, but not across the board. You had, there were more discipline problems, more uh, a lot more folks without the uh, Education. But my first platoon, only one Marine had a high school education. Um, so they're better educated. Uh, it's an all-volunteer force. There's no threat of a draft, so it's a true all-volunteer force. And some of these techniques that they've heard about, most of them don't haven't really experienced it. Um, were, maybe they were needed in those days, but with the force we have today, I don't think some of the the, uh, the, the more far-out ones are ones we should uh, count. What, okay, so this is kind of the general question. What uh, What haven't I been smart enough to ask you about this subject 
that, that you think is really important to know? As Marines, take kind of a uh, what I hope is a, a grown-up, uh, mature discipline on, on the role, a, a grown-up, uh, mature view of the subject of discipline and how integral it is to, to our life, and in particular whether it is in garrison, whether you're out in the field operating, or whether you're actually getting ready or going to war. What haven't I been smart enough to ask you without which this discussion isn't complete? I, I would go back to say what is the fundamental truth? The fundamental truth is you do not want any difference between what you do in garrison and what you do in wartime. You don't. You want mission-type orders in garrison. You want mission-type orders in combat. You want it strict adherence to standards and uniformity that have a purpose, not, not just to look good, uh, not for appearances, but have meaning in peacetime and in, in wartime. So in peacetime, there's a reason that you keep your gear scored away. There's a reason you keep your room scored away because you're supposed to do the same with your with your combat equipment. Uh, if you go into a combat zone and uh, mar- Marines behave like they do in peacetime with throwing this stuff around, it destroys the uh, the camouflage. You know, dig a foxhole, put camo paint on your face, and then leave some trash laying around that um, can be seen for for yards. So. Uh, they've got to be the same. We used to, uh, in the old days, when we first were introducing computers, the ones in garrison were in white containers, and the ones for the field were green, a green shell. And we used to talk about white gear and, and green gear. Well, then somebody realized, no, uh, the, the, uh, the form, the function, the feel for what you do in garrison ought to be the same as what you do in, in combat. So the same machines we used in, in the uh, garrison environment begin to be the same ones we used to, uh, in the uh, in the field. So it's there just is no dividing line between the two. When when you think about um, what you say was the misunderstanding in a lot of ways of the the term is chicken shit discipline and and you said earlier in the interview that it's not discipline for the sake of merely appearance discipline. It is functional discipline that contributes to organizational discipline that, that makes you a better war fighting unit that translates to less casual, less casualties in combat. Is that, is that the thing that irritates you the most when people talk about, uh, what you tried to do with the second Marine division in 1991? Yes, and what irritates me now is this reference that it wasn't like that. It's not like that in the old coral. I'm 81 years old. Uh, if you're more than 81, I'll listen to you about what it was like in the old days. But if you're not, uh, then then your old core is was my new core, and it's not it's not the way you're describing it. Things aren't aren't quite like you envisioned they might have been. Uh, so um, that, that that irritates me, I guess, uh, when I hear that. The um, the other thing is um, uh, there, there are things on that list that people might question. One of the ones was why I didn't want to see Marines walking around licking an ice cream cone. Um, but in the, the uh, post-Vietnam era, Marines outwardly didn't seem to display, display the pride that I had experienced uh, back in the, in the 50s. So to try to illustrate this, before I took battalion command, 
I got a photo of a so-called horse marine from China. Many of us have seen it. He's standing at a modified parade rest with a sword uh, in front of him, the uh, tip on the, on the ground. And he has this look of confidence. It's not arrogance. It's just solid confidence. And I would write on, uh, I got the picture uh, reproduced, and I had a bunch of them. And whenever I would see a Marine that exhibited anything like that, I would sign it to a Marine who exhibits the comp- competence and confidence uh, of this of this Marine, of the China Marines. And it became almost like an award. Marines really wanted this. Uh, in fact, I'd every once in a while, an officer would be leaving the battalion, he said, Sir, I, I know the battalion commander didn't intend these photos for uh, the officers, but could you autograph one for me? And, and so I would. Uh, and so then I'm, I see Marines strolling along, hands in their pocket, eating an ice cream cone. Now, technically, there's nothing wrong with that, but it's just the idea that you, you're not exhibiting the the pride and, uh, you're supposed to. Not, out of uniform, I could care less. It's the fact that they were doing that in uniform that uh, sort of destroys the image that we want to portray of a professional force. So there were, there were things like that, and there's other things on that list that are, you, can, you can immediately see why you wouldn't do them. You know, in your, mem- in your uh, memorandum number one of 1991, um, to the uh, division staff, regimental, and separate battalions, uh, under the subject as philosophy of leadership, paragraph one, my first and foremost charge to you is to maintain an environment which allows our, our officers and non-commissioned officers to lead properly. And then this is underlined from the gentleman who sent it to me, the, the Marine officer who sent it to me. This environment has and must remain one in which all have a strong sense that being a Marine is a special calling, not an occupation or a job. And that's exactly what you just discussed. Right. Uh, I remember reading a, a book when I was younger about what made the German army uh, the, the kind of a quality force it was, for, you know, not the, n- not the German government, but the German army that we all uh, look back. And the answer was that every German soldier cared what every other German soldier did. And I think that ought to be even more so with the Marine. Every Marine ought to care what every other Marine does. So if you're in an airport and you see a Marine out of uniform, which is unusual, uh, you, you won't just let it pass by. You'll correct that marine, and it's the uh, it's the overall impression. The, uh, and, and when I talk to members of the other services, which I do quite frequently, that's the thing they marvel at is um, is across the board how even our discipline is and how consistent it is. Somebody emailed me a question to ask you, so I want it, to. It's appropriate as we wind this thing down to ask it now, Mac. When you get General Van Riper on, I'm curious about something you said about a week ago. You said, given the state of our culture today, it takes more courage for a young person to look at the Marine Corps and say, I want a piece of that, than it did in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, or even the 90s. That the cultural divide has grown. The values of the Marine Corps are so different now than much of our culture, not all of it, but much of it, that it takes that it does take more moral courage on the part of a young person to look at the Marine Corps and say, I want a piece of that. Do you think, and this is my question, if you could ask the general, that if we don't uphold those standards, that Marines are actually disappointed when they come in, that it isn't the way they thought it would be, 
and that the change doesn't really need to be forever. It can only be while I'm at work during part of the day, and they can go back to being the way they were and exhibit those behaviors when discipline is an important part of our life. So, so the, that, the answer is there's two parts. Uh, yes, in terms of is it is it a challenge? It is for a lot of reasons. One is our society is so much different. A large portion of those who enlisted in the Marine Corps and were commissioned came from uh, the farms. They came from the factories. They came from a, a generation that had endured hardship, going clear back to the Depression and the wars. Uh, they were used to people being sick. Uh, m- many families were six, seven children. It was not unusual for one or two of those children to die, either in some sort of an accident uh, at work or of disease. And now they're in families of one and two children, and it's, it's very unusual to hear of somebody, a young person, uh, perishing. So, uh, and, and some of the physical jobs that were in the past are no, no longer exist. So from that, uh, what they're going to face, the, the physical challenges, the hardships in the Marine Corps, it's going to be a little more difficult for them. On the other side, those who came to the colors then always had the draft hanging over them. So were they true volunteers? What, what would they have done? Uh, I mean, I have to even go back to myself. What would I have done if I hadn't known there was a draft? Uh, would I say, oh, I'll just go to college and I'll do something else? Uh, today, they are true volunteers. So you have, you have both sides of it. It's going to be more challenging for them, uh, but their motivation is purer uh, than, than you could say for, across the board for those who enlisted prior to the all-volunteer force. Do you think by not adhering to that standard that it, that it is a major disappointment to them professionally? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm surprised it is, but I've had uh, run into rings who say the boot camp was too easy. Uh, and I don't think it's any bravado. I think they read the, uh, the stories about boot camp were such that they, they didn't think that the uh, – it lived up to those stories. Uh. Interesting, interesting. The um, so so um, to close this out um, again. Thank you, uh, thank you for uh, thank you for coming on and and talking about this. And and I think this is a great way uh, to kick off what I hope is is a is a deep discussion about about uh, discipline throughout the course of the Marine Corps. General Furness has kind of lit it off, and. Uh, but I know there's tremendous in, in, in interest in it because on a daily basis, I, I people reach out to me, either expressing their interest in these interviews or just a general thought about the uh, about the discussion. So thank you very much for doing this and uh, bring us up to date. Uh, what are you doing these days, and uh, what have what have you become? Uh, well, <laughs> I've become an old an old man, but is that uh, Thing I think it was Clint Eastwood. I don't let the old man in, so uh, I'm still in pretty good health. My my wife, unfortunately, is not, so I find myself spending a lot of time with with her, either um, going going to doctors or uh, caring for her. But uh, I, I uh, spend a lot of time reading. I uh, read professional things, particularly uh, uh, history, military history. Uh, I find myself reading a lot of things about faith and theology. And I always go back to uh, what's in one of those documents you referenced, where I, sh- I share with Marines that there are four important things in most of our lives. 
and that, of course, is uh, our country, our friends, family, and our faith. And then uh, while we're in the core and ever afterwards, the the core. Uh, On most days, all of those four things are in balance. You don't have any problems. But when you when you are uh, challenged by something that makes you think, well, which one of these is more important? Uh, I tell them if the if the core ever asks you to do something that's wrong for the nation, you simply don't do it. You, you understand the Constitution is to the nation; it's it's not the core. Uh, if the n- nation ever asks you to do something that goes against your faith, you simply don't do it. Because the, the order of priority when it's necessary is on the bottom is the core, then your country, then your family and friends, and right at the top is your faith. And um, I think anybody that's been in combat knows that. And certainly as you as you age, you'll become more inclined to appreciate it. All right. Give me a, give me a, a, a leadership book to read. What would I read? Um, yeah, give me a give me um yeah give me something interesting relative to leadership that you've read recently. Well, I'm I'm going to have to look the title up for you, but there's a gentleman who reached out to me. He does uh, uh, some of the similar things you're doing, and he's just written a new book that I had a look at that really impressed me. Uh, first, it was well written, it was practical, and it was on how to take initiative. Uh, if go if if it's not that. I go back to the original uh, handbook for officers that SLA Marshall wrote. It was uh, printed for years. When I was on active duty, they did a rewrite with, with a different author. It never met the, the previous standard, and I believe it's been rewritten once since then. But it's SLA Marshall book on uh, how to on being an officer. Um, that's probably the one I'd go back to. All right, all right. And then, uh, and then, uh, how about a book on uh, on faith or theology that uh, that you'd recommend that anybody read? Well, this course, depending on your what uh, religion that you base your faith on, would be different. For me, it's uh, it's a book on Jesus, uh, and it's uh, called uh, uh, Theography, and it's a combining of uh, of uh, both a, a biography and theology. And what the authors maintain is that there have been a number of books written on Jesus about the biography of his life. There have been others, many others, written about the theology that he preached. They write one where they, they blend the two. And it's really interesting because uh, they fill in the, the uh, years from his youth until he began to preach. And it's not supposition. It's based on historical research of what young men w- would have done during that period. Yeah, which is, was an which, interesting is book. which is largely absent in in the Gospels. You know, there's this leap between his his youth and then uh, and then his uh, and, and then uh, as he begins his uh, his uh, to preach and and uh, his public life. So, so that's yeah, what, you know, when I saw, and I read that start, they said this is going to be a stretch. Huh? This is going to be a lot of <laughs> supposition. But when you begin to look at the historical facts of what young men could do uh, based on their Whatever tribe they came from, whatever their geographical location, they narrowed down pretty well. So it was interesting reading. So. The um, and what's the name of that book, sir? The, the it's author. called uh, uh, Jesus. I think I'm saying it right. A theography. A theography. It's uh, yeah. All right, my guest today in the first installment of On Discipline has been uh, the man that was most known for it when uh, I was in the Marine Corps as a as a lieutenant and a captain. Uh, retired Marine Corps uh, Lieutenant General uh, Paul K. Van Riper. What's the K stand for? K 
Captain. My, my, um, my mother hated nicknames, so she named my twin brother James Keith and named me Paul Kent. And, of course, right away, they <clears throat> come in the Marine Corps, they picked up Rip from me. So, <laughs> <laughs> the, um, Well, sir, first of all, again, thank you very much. Uh, it's uh, It's been an honor to have you on the program, and I, and I hope uh, – I'd love to have you come back, as I mentioned earlier, and talk about uh, maneuver warfare and get your thoughts on modern-day warfare uh, at a different time. But thank you very much for doing this. Guys, I look forward to the other because there's, there's a lot of emphasis now on uh, – whether war fighting, the uh, Marine Corps Doctrinal Pub 1 needs upgrades or not. And I've got some uh, thoughts on it and some insights. I'd love to. Well, and again, you were one of the first people that, you know, you put the eye and, uh, you know, it was uh, it used to be C2, command and control. Right. And, and then it grew. And then it got it, and it got an eye in there, and uh, and so you were one of the people I think that opened a lot of people's eyes to the future of command and control, and what it would mean for operations and where this whole thing was going. So uh, I would love, I would love to do this. So uh, thank you very much for doing this. Okay, well, appreciate it. I'm always glad to keep my least finger on what's going on in our core. All right, there you have it. That is uh, retired Marine Corps Gen- Lieutenant General Paul Van Riper. More of All Marine Radio coming up next on your home for it, the All Warrior Radio Network.